Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Just this past week, I received an email from a friend who's been listening to the podcast, and she said all kinds of lovely, wonderful things that um, meant so much to me. Um, She said that reading these essential texts has been kind of helping her make sense of things in her life that haven't made sense and that she's been able to feel really empowered and validated. And so, of course, I was just thrilled um, because that's the effect that all of these texts have had on my life as well. And that's why I'm doing this whole project. Um, Specifically in her email, she said something that was um, so timely for this week's topic. She said, this is a quote, quote, I feel like I've woken from a deep sleep and have been starving for this knowledge. That's the end of the quote. So today we will be reading a passage from a book where literally the main character wakes up from a deep sleep, literally and metaphorically, and she literally and metaphorically is starving when she wakes up. So I think a lot of our listeners will really relate to this text. It's The Awakening by Kate Chopin. It was published in 1899. And the setting is similar to the one in the yellow wallpaper from last week because it's in the United States in the late 19th century. Um, But Kate Chopin has a really unique perspective. She's a Southern writer. She's writing in New Orleans. And her story caused a huge scandal when it was first published because it talks frankly about women's sexuality and about adultery. And so it flagrantly challenged the social norms of the day. And also the book is considered hugely important in retrospect, especially because it represents the really rich inner world and inner workings of a woman's mind and her own thinking. And so that carved new paths for authors who came after her, both men and women. But before I get ahead of myself, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Shauna Wrench. Hi, Shauna. Hi, Amy. Shauna, thank you so much for being here today. I'm super excited about this. Um, Shauna and I met through our husbands. My husband, Eric, and Shauna's husband, Danny, work together at chess.com. And Eric and Danny are hilarious together. They are (laughs) like brothers and... They kind of have a little bromance going on. I know Eric <laughs> just adores Danny. And um, in recent years, it's been super fun, Shauna, because you and I have gotten to hang out several times and we can bond about how ridiculous our husbands are and kind of roll our eyes and like <laughs> laugh at them, their shenanigans. Yep. But also, I just think you're so such a smart person, so well-spoken. Every time I've talked to you, I've just come away going, ah, I want to spend more time with Shauna. Um, You always weigh in on things with really interesting perspectives, and um, I'm just really thrilled that you agreed to join me for this discussion. So thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, I have really, really enjoyed getting to know you, and I feel like it's just exciting to be a part of this project. It felt like I listened to all the other episodes kind of getting ready, uh, Mm. and it was just really fun because it's a lot of things you're like, oh, I've heard of that, or... Like I, I, I remember reading about that or something, but like, like you've heard said in other episodes, like you don't quite have that knowledge, like the real facts to back that stuff up. So mm. it's been really fun. I've really enjoyed listening to it. Oh, thanks. That's awesome. And yep, that's how I felt too, as I've read it. So that's, I'm so glad that you had that experience as a reader too. Um, so before we talk about 
Kate Chopin and The Awakening, I, I love to ask my reader, my reading partners just to talk a little bit about themselves. So could you just kind of tell us who you are, where you're from, kind of what makes you tick and what makes you you? Sure. Um, so I was born in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, lived there till the end of high school. Um, I was raised by a single mom after my parents divorced when I was seven. Um, and this was just super impactful um, for my whole life. I really saw her reinvent her life post-divorce. It was like two different lifetimes. Um, she started her own graphic design company, which made it possible for her to work from home while raising me and my three younger siblings. Um, and we all moved in with my grandparents after the divorce and lived you know, blocks away from them, uh, even when we didn't live with them until my grandma passed away when I was 17. So they really helped mm -hmm. raise me and were a big part of my life. Um, and I'll talk, but my grandma was a school teacher, which I think is part of the reason I was drawn to go into teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and then after high school, my family moved to Arizona and I started dating my husband when I was 19. And I was at ASU trying to decide what I wanted to do. Super. I was like the typical college undecided. Um, mm -hmm. So I jumped from wanting to be a naturopathic doctor to a Spanish translator to finally settling into teaching. And I had just gotten into their teaching program after two years and then had my first son at 22 and got married. So um, since I was at that point, I couldn't figure out how to do student teaching and still wanting to stay home with him. So I took a break. And then my husband was teaching chess lessons and reach, we ran chess tournaments on the weekends. Um, and then when I was pregnant with my second, I decided to finish my bachelor's, but I couldn't do it in teaching because I still had kids and student teaching and stuff was hard to figure mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. So instead, I picked a humanities degree um, just so that I could finish it online. And I graduated when he was nine months old, my second. And it's funny to think back on now because it was nowhere near where I started. Like to say I had a humanities degree was just laughable because I considered myself like a total math and science person. Um, mm. But it was great for me because it really gave me a ton of appreciation for history and writing that I didn't have previously. So I felt like it really like rounded me out, especially for like being a teacher. Um, and then I took tests to get highly qualified because I could teach at a charter school as long as I had a bachelor's and had done like the teaching tests. So then I taught for six years and had my third. And then I went back to school online and got my teaching certificate by completing a master's in uh, elementary education between my third and fourth. So now I have two boys, 15 and 12, and two girls, nine and five. And um, taught up until just a few years ago, I officially shifted into being a stay-at-home mom, which has actually been like a huge shocking change for me. <laughs> I've mm. always had a job or been in school. Um, and then obviously this last year has just been major overhaul in my life. So it's been for so many people. Um, yeah. And so now I'm just kind of in this transition phase of whatever the next stage of life brings. So Wow. I hadn't realized, I mean, I, I guess I knew you had a master's degree and that you were a teacher, but I didn't realize that you had like fit in all of that education and all of that work as you were having for children, like all along the way, that is not easy to do. That's awesome it, that you were able to do I that. always, I always tease that I like to do things my own way. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I don't take the clear and easy path, Easy, yeah, um, you know, but yeah. it was really interesting for me because it made my schooling way more meaningful to do it mm -hmm. once I had a reason to do it. Like, I don't think I would have made it through with as much 
like learning, honestly, if I had done it as a 22 year old, like I just wasn't, you know, it like wasn't meaningful yet. So then once I knew what I wanted to do, then it kind of hit stronger. And then I was, you know, writing papers at three in the morning (laughs) while I had babies and stuff, like put them to bed and finish, finish papers and stuff. But it really like, for me was the only way to do it because it made it really important. Whereas like I was not that motivated before I had kids. Hmm. That's really impressive, Shauna. That's awesome. That's so great. Okay, really quick, um, before we go on to the text, I also like to ask my reading partners what kind of what um, breaking down patriarchy means to you or what your views are on patriarchy, kind of what brought you to the project. So what would you answer for that? Um, So I thought about it because, I mean, honestly, the first answer other people have said was just because you asked me because I was like, oh, that's (laughs) so cool. Like, of course, (laughs) of course, say yes. Um, But thinking about it really like what is patriarchy mean to me, like I said, I was raised by a single mother. Um, So I feel like that in and of itself makes it a different experience, you know, like growing up in a in a female centered and single mother household. Mm-hmm. But her parents were first generation immigrants. And so their parents had all moved to the United States from Greece. And so after the divorce, when we moved in with my grandparents, um, I really watched like different generations with really different beliefs, like dealing with each other. Um, and saw a lot of like my mom's experience in the Greek culture, like you know, that was their life. And so she, they were Greek Orthodox, um, but my mom hadn't stayed with the church. She raised us like much more spiritually centered. And so living with them was really like a clash of worlds. And my mom was a super rebellious woman in terms of like the patriarchy. She was the first in her family to marry a non-Greek, which was a huge deal. Um, She was the first to get a divorce, which was also a huge deal, but she was just like a warrior. Um, And she talked about and like her fight with the patriarchy. She grew up with a culture of like really feeling undervalued or completely like just neglected as a woman. Um, We heard tons of family stories growing up about the negative effects of these feelings in women in my family. Um, She wasn't even given a middle name because she was a girl. Like boys got middle names that were after their fathers, but like she Mm. didn't have a middle name. Was that Um, because... Sorry, was that because yeah. they just assumed she would get married and so then her last name would be her middle name? And so it was just like gearing her up yeah. for marriage or was it? I don't I don't honestly know. I just know that like it was a joke when she got mail that they always put a P in like it was oh. Catherine P. Carries. And so oh. I'd ask her like what her middle name was. She's like, no, I don't have one. Oh, wow. And it was just like, so it's this really, but all of like the way that the naming goes is like my grandpa was William George and then his first son was George William. Like they, so there was this whole tradition. There were all of these things that like men Mm -hmm. passed down and it was just like, oh, but you don't need that because you're a girl. Mm. Um, And then my mom told me like this really upsetting story where her grandmother, my, my, like her mom's mom um, had three girls. And so by the time she had her third, she said that like she, her mom wouldn't even hold her cause she was so upset oh. that she wasn't a son. Like oh it was like gosh. these really, really crushing stories that were very real in my family. And my mom was really honest about it. She was very like, talk to us about her pain, like the things that she really wanted to like break from, um, 
and really wanted something different. And I feel like even though I've dealt with like my own experiences of patriarchy and things I've struggled with, like it didn't make it not happen, but it made me very aware of it. Like, Mm. I feel like I was, I saw it from like a very young age, even though I still struggled with it. Um, but my mom passed away this last year, uh, really suddenly from cancer. And so I feel like it's been very up for me. Like it's been a very conscious thing through her death and through just looking at like reexamining stories and attitudes and what I'm passing on to my children, like, you know, what my girls and boys are going to learn and what I'm going to give them to go out into the world with, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that I personally am like very invested in bringing more understanding to systems and stories and all the things like we're taught because it starts like within your home. And then Mm -hmm. that's how you, you know, set them up to deal with the larger society that, you know, we have to send them out into. So, yeah. Wow. Shauna, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I'm so sorry. We've, we've talked about it before, but I just have to say, I'm so sorry about your mom's passing. I, that's so hard. Um, and wow, what an amazing woman. I, I, we've never had a chance to talk about her before. I had no idea about any of that. What an amazing example. She really like, and, and it's, it's been really special to think about because it comes from the place of like, she wasn't perfect. Like it, she wasn't a woman who didn't have any effects of patriarchy, you know, like she wasn't somebody who didn't have to deal with it. She's somebody who dealt with it, but it was just like a really honest, like open topic where you feel like, okay, like at least it's present. It's not like gone, you know? Right. 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 And if it, well, yeah, if you know about it and you talk about it, then it makes you able to deal with it consciously. Like, I mean, yeah. kind of that's the point of what you were saying, right? And that's because yeah. if we don't even realize, if we don't have a framework for it, if we can't name it, if we don't have a vocabulary that it makes it so we just have, honestly, I think it kind of makes us sick, like yes. like ill. And we yes. don't know, we can't diagnose where the sickness is coming from and we then can't start to heal from it and get better. So yeah, that's awesome. She was such a conscious woman. Um, well, that's a really neat um that's just such a great setup to know this. These are kind of the lenses that you have on coming to this text too, right? Because there's some really relevant things there. Um, but should we forge ahead and go on to the bio of yes. Kate Chopin and um, kind of a little bit about who she was? I'll talk about Chopin. And then afterwards, um, we talked about well, first of all, spoiler spoiler alert for <laughs> listeners, right? Yes. We're going to give a bio of Kate Chopin, and then we are going to just quickly talk through the story because it will be really hard to describe the themes without kind of having a framework of how the story is going to go. So I'll talk about who Kate Chopin was briefly, and then Shauna um, will kind of talk through the main points of the story. But if you haven't read the book, turn this off and go <laughs> read it really quick. It's not yeah, that long, it's, and it's such a good book. Yeah, it's not long, and like... Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Like, yeah. I didn't know it was coming, and it Me was neither. so much more impactful to be like, oh my gosh. So, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely read it. <laughs> definitely read it. Okay, so here's a little bit about Kate Chopin. She was born Catherine O'Flaherty in St. Louis, Missouri on February 8th, 1850. Her father was Thomas O'Flaherty. I don't know how to pronounce that. It's an Irish <laughs> name, O'Flaherty. Um, he had immigrated from Galway, Ireland. Um, 
in the mid 1800s, like so many Irish immigrants at that time. Her mother, Eliza Ferris, was a well-connected member of the French community in St. Louis. And the family was Roman Catholic um, on both sides, both the French and the Irish side. At the age of five, Kate was sent to Sacred Heart Academy, a Catholic school. She loved to read, and she was actually taught how to handle her own money and how to make her own decisions. Um, It was rare for for girls to be sent to school at that time. And at a Catholic school, this is really cool because we talked about this a few episodes ago, that in convents, a lot of times women had more autonomy um, than they did in the outside world. And so the fact that she was like really encouraged to read and write and to develop her talents and even to manage money was really cool and and perhaps available just because she was in a Catholic school, interestingly. Um, So sadly, when Kate was a little girl, her father died. Um, So Kate was brought back home um, from the Catholic school to live with her mother and her grandmother and her great-grandmother. So this was a household of three generations of single women. All of these women had been widowed young and had never remarried. So between the convent and her family life, she was really surrounded by relatively independent women, um, which was really, really rare at the time, especially. Um, For two years, she was tutored at home by her great-grandmother, who taught her French and music and history. And then after those two years, Kate went back to Sacred Heart Academy, and she had a wonderful teacher who encouraged her to write and develop her critical thinking skills. All of this, again, super rare for girls at the time. Um, In St. Louis, Missouri, on June 8th, 1870, skipping way ahead, Kate married Oscar Chopin and settled with him in his hometown of New Orleans. And then Kate gave birth to their baby, their first baby, the following year. And then in total, she had six children in eight years. And just let that sink in for a second. (laughs) Some of our listeners might have six children in eight years, but just myself having had four children in just under seven years, that I'm (laughs) I'm like speechless. Um, And then to make matters harder, the year that the, the very year that the last child was born in 1879, Kate's husband, Oscar, um, lost his livelihood, his cotton brokerage failed. So the family had to leave New Orleans. They moved to Cloutierville in a different town in Louisiana to manage several small plantations and a general store. Um, They became active in the community. And that was at the time, this was called Creole Society. And at the time, what that meant was um, the community that was ethnic and culturally French. And it's important to note that Creole today usually means biracial people who are of European and African descent. But when you read the book, in Chopin's day, it meant white French immigrants. And so when she says Creole in the book, that's what she's talking about. Um, So in 1882, Kate's husband, Oscar, died. So she... At this point, she was 32 years old. She had six children from the ages of 12 down to three. And when Oscar died, he left $42,000 in debt. And I looked it up and um, accounting for inflation, that would be approximately $1 million of debt. So for a while, Kate, after her husband died, Kate ran her husband's business And um, a Kate Chopin scholar named Emily Toth describes that Kate, quote, flirted outrageously with local men. 
She even engaged in a relationship with a married farmer, end quote. So um, although Chopin worked to, she worked to make her late husband's plantation and general store succeed, it just couldn't, she couldn't manage it by herself. And two years later, she sold the business and she moved back to St. Louis to live by her mother and her children gradually settled into life in, into St. Louis, but Chopin's mother died the following year. So leaving her just utterly alone um, with her children. And after that, she really struggled with depression. And this is so interesting, this next part of her life, because especially in context of last week's episode on the yellow wallpaper, which also um, describes deep depression and the medical paternalism of the time and how they handled just women in general, but especially like medical issues regarding women. So Kate Chopin went to her her obstetrician, who was a family friend. His name was Dr. Frederick Kolbenheyer. And she said, I'm, you know, so, so depressed. I need help. And his prescription were for her was that she start writing because he believed it could be therapeutic for her. It could be an outlet for her energy. And um, it was one of the very few sources of income that was available to women at the time. So it would help her make money too. You could sell stories. Like if you think of Louisa May Alcott um, selling her stories too. Um, But that is like, especially compared to Charlotte Perkins Gilman, that is completely opposite of the approach. So I don't know if St. Louis was just different from the East Coast or if it was just super good luck to find an open-minded doctor. But either way, you know, Charlotte Perkins Gilman was prescribed the rest cure and told to never pick up a pen and paper again when she had severe depression. But Kate Chopin was prescribed exactly the opposite and she was told to write. So thank goodness she was because in the early 1890s, Chopin was publishing short stories and articles and translations that were appearing in periodicals, including the St. Louis Post-Dispatch newspaper and various literary magazines. Um, She was considered, she was kind of limited in her scope at the time in terms of that, that's the way she was perceived as being a little bit limited. She was considered to be a regional writer who provided like kind of interest stories on the local color of of New Orleans and kind of in a Southern genre. Um, it turns out in retrospect, she was actually an incredible writer, but at the time her strong literary um, capacity and quality was, was mostly overlooked. She was published though in the Atlantic Monthly and in Vogue, and a collection of her short stories was published by Houghton Mifflin with really great reviews. All of that until in 1899, her second novel, The Awakening, was published. And some newspaper critics reviewed the novel favorably, but most condemned it as being vulgar and immoral and offensive. So it got mostly terrible reviews just because her treatment of female sexuality and like her real feelings about motherhood and about marital infidelity were just, I think, too too wildly out of step with the cultural norms of the time. Um, thus, it devastated Chopin that the, the novel was received so poorly. Um, and she kind of faded into obscurity. People didn't really read her. Her book was um, out of print for several decades. It wasn't rediscovered until the 1970s when there was a wave of new studies and appreciation of women's writings. And so then the novel was reprinted and gained critical acclaim for the writing quality and seen then as 
like, oh my gosh, this is a really important early feminist work in the South. Although interestingly, I read a few articles on Chopin and she, at the time, she didn't describe herself as a feminist and she was actually not even in favor of women's suffrage. So it just goes to show that human beings are complex and like sometimes certain parts of our development outpace other parts of our development and maybe being a Catholic, who knows? But um, anyway, uh, back to Chopin, uh, she actually passed away at quite a young age. She was visiting the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904, and she suffered a brain hemorrhage and passed away two days later. Um, but that's a bit about the author. So um, like we said, we're going to just outline a bit of the story just so we kind of have a framework to go through. So, so Shauna, could you tell us, just kind of give us a summary of The Awakening? Yeah. Yes. So, um, so the novel opens with the, I'm going to keep saying these names, Pontellier family. Um, so there's Leonce Say, Leonce, um, a New Orleans businessman of Louisiana Creole heritage, his wife, Edna, and then their two sons, Etienne and Raul. And they're all vacationing um, on Grand Isle in it's a resort on the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and it's managed by Madame Lebrun and her two sons, Robert and Victor. Edna spends most of her time with her close friend, Adele Ratignol, who cheerily and boisterously uh, reminds Edna of her duties as a wife and mother. And at Grand Isle, Edna eventually forms a connection with Robert. And he's just this young, charming, earnest young man who actively seeks Edna's attention and affections. And it seems casual at first, but Edna begins to think of him more and they kind of separately realize that they have this infatuation. And then suddenly Robert senses the doomed nature of such a relationship and flees to Mexico under the guise of pursuing a, a nameless business venture. Um, so then we shift our focus to Edna and we start to pretty much go into her emotions as she reconciles her womanly duties with her desire for social and sexual freedom to be with Robert since she's a married woman. Um, so then summer vacation ends and the family returns to New Orleans and Edna gradually starts to reassess her priorities and take a more active role in her happiness. This is kind of her awakening. She starts to isolate herself from New Orleans society, and she withdraws from some of the duties traditionally associated with being a wife and mother at the time. And Leonce eventually talks to a doctor about diagnosing his wife, fearing that she's losing her, her mental faculties. And this was really interesting. Um, the conversation they have is really interesting as it's two men's perception of her changes in like her attitude and character. And the doctor actually wonders about what influences she's been exposed to and asks, quote, has she, asked the doctor with a smile, been associating of late with a circle of pseudo intellectual women, super spiritual superior beings? My wife has been telling me about them, end quote. Um, and he advises her husband to just let her be and assures him that things will return to normal. But here's how he phrases his recommendation. Quote, Pontillier said the doctor, woman is a very peculiar and delicate organism. A sensitive and highly organized woman, such as I know Mrs. Pontillier to be, is especially peculiar. It would require an inspired psychologist to deal successfully with them. Most women are moody and whimsical. 
This is some passing whim of her wife due to some cause and ca- or causes which you and I needn't try to fathom, but it will pass happily over, end quote. So the fact that their conversation's limited to seeing changes in her caused only by a shift in her mental state. And so they just dismiss understanding her because they not, they're not psychologists. Um, basically treat her like she's, you know, a machine that's on the fritz, but will eventually get back to normal. So, um, but anyway, so back to the story. Um, Leonce prepares to travel to New York on business and his mother comes to take the boys to her home. And so being left alone for an extended period really gives Edna physical and emotional room to breathe and reflect on these various aspects of her life. And this actually reminded me of a previous episode where you referenced free space mm-hmm. and how women usually don't have access to that. Um, mm-hmm. So this is like a really important time for her. She really like gets to know herself. And so while her husband's away, she moves out of their home and into a small bungalow nearby. She wants to establish her own space that's not supported by her husband's income or material possessions. And she begins an affair with a, a man in the neighborhood who's basically kind of known as a suitor and has a reputation for being free in his affections with, you know, lots of women. Um, I'll say a Robin and Edna reaches out to another woman who's kind of an independent, um, Mademoiselle Reese. And she's a gifted pianist whose playing is just renowned, but she maintains a generally hermetic existence And her playing had moved Edna earlier in the novel, um, really representing for Edna this long for independence. And she focuses her life totally on music and herself instead of on society's expectations. So she's really the opposite to um, her other friend, Adele, who's like the mother, you know, the right kind of woman Mm -hmm. um, who wants Edna to conform. And Reese is important because she's in contact with Robert in Mexico and she's receiving letters from him and Edna begs her to reveal the contents of the letters. And when she does, she proves to Edna that Robert's still thinking about her. So she kind of reignites this flame. Um, And eventually Robert returns to New Orleans. At first, he's really aloof and finds reasons to avoid Edna and she's just heartbroken And then after a few meetings, her unhappiness kind of softens his guard and they admit their feelings. And he admits to her that his business trip to Mexico was just an excuse to escape the relationship because she's married and he, you know, didn't, couldn't have her. And so after a first kiss between them, he laments about her belonging to Leonce and her claiming her independence. And she's called away to help Adele with a difficult childbirth. And Adele suspects Edna's affair and really pleads with her to think of what she'd be doing um, if she doesn't behave appropriately. And when Edna returns home, she finds a note from Robert stating that he's left and he loves her too much to shame her by engaging in a relationship with a married woman. And Edna's just devastated and in shock. Um, So she returns to Grand Isle where she and Robert first met. And she reflects on her position in life as a confined woman through marriage and motherhood and without seeing any way to feel fulfilled without causing pain to those around her, she decides that her only escape is to drown herself in the Gulf of Mexico. And so the end of the story is she swims out with no plans to return and just slowly lets the water take her. Ugh. It's so sad. (laughs) It's so sad. So sad. And so uh, shocking, like you said, neither of us, we like texted each other, we're like, 
Did yeah. you did you see this coming? <laughs> like, no, oh, no. I was I was glad I didn't know, but it was quite shocking actually at the end and kind of an ambiguous ending too of like, wait, is this an act? We'll ta- we'll talk about it yes, later, I guess. Yeah. But like, so much, so much to the ending. So much to the ending. Okay, but I won't. We won't get ahead of ourselves. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna first. Um, we're gonna discuss just a couple of themes from the book. So first we'll talk about the the patriarchal constructs at play in these characters' lives that kind of forms the backdrop and the, the framework in which they're living. Then we'll talk about motherhood, and then we'll talk about some of the complicated aspects of Edna's awakening. So first we're going to talk about the, the matrix of patriarchy as it functioned in New Orleans at the end of the 19th century. Um, I want to mention first that all the main characters in the book are descended from French immigrants. We, we mentioned that Creoles were of relatively recent French descent, and in fact, many of them spoke French throughout the book. Um, there's also mention of Acadians, and these are people who came down to the south from the Acadian region of Canada in Maine. And in fact, just the other day, my sister Courtney who did the episode on the Seneca Falls Convention, she was talking about her trip to Acadia National Park in Maine. And she was like, oh, yeah, did you know that the French immigrants settled in Acadia up in like Maine and Canada? And when they went to the south, they were known as the Acadians. And eventually that slang term or a slang term developed for them. And that's where we get the word Cajun. Isn't that interesting? That's crazy. So interesting. Yeah. Anyway, at the time when you read about Acadians and Creoles, these are all French people. But Chopin also briefly mentions um, other groups of people living in Louisiana at the time. And there is like a, a presence, kind of an ubiquitous presence of black girls and women who do all the behind the scenes work. They cook and they clean and they run the sewing machines and just in general do all of the work that the white women don't do and won't do. Um, And then there's one character who, if I were going to write a paper on this book, I think I would write about these, um, these women of color actually in the background, because I thought that was really interesting. There's one woman in particular named Mariquita, who's from Mexico and she's described in derogatory terms and several characters lash out at her just in these like random small moments, really unfairly. And I just wanted to acknowledge that right off the bat is just these interlocking systems of oppression, of sexism and racism for women of color at the time. Um, So when we talk about, quote unquote, women in this novel, we're talking about the the main characters. And that's who Kate Chopin is writing about. Um, But, you know, they're women who were who were restricted to this, you know, the 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 famous gilded cage, right? But these women, you know, like Edna had extraordinary privilege and they were benefiting every day from the labor of these women of color around them. And they, the the characters are completely, they seem completely and utterly blind to the plight of these women of color. And I just wanted to acknowledge that at first because that bothered me throughout the novel. Um, But in terms of the patriarchy that Edna experiences as the main character of the novel, so she's in this white French upper class community in New Orleans. Um, And I'll just start out with a quote that that illustrates this. So, quote, at a very early period, she had apprehended instinctively the dual life, that outward existence which conforms, the inward life which questions. She had all her life long been accustomed to harbor thoughts and emotions which never voiced themselves. 
Um, so first of all, reading that, I one thing that comes to me is that it's it's important to point out that that happens to men too. It's not like all the men were out there living these free, fulfilling lives um, while all the women were trapped and kept under the thumbs of their husbands. That's not the case at all. Most men also were you know, living lives of quiet desperation as well, locked into their roles. And they're not like really following their own true dreams either. And that's still the case, right? I mean, it's not like all the men are free and all the women are are, are restricted. Um, but one thing that Gerda Lerner points out um, that comes back to my mind often is that patriarchal systems exclude from leadership and restrict the choices of almost all the other men and all the women. And so um, I was thinking, like, if you want to see a really vivid, dramatic depiction of that phenomenon where patriarchy is harming the men, but it, and it's also really, really restricting the women, um, the Netflix series Unorthodox. Have you seen that yet, Shauna? No, I haven't. Oh, my gosh. Just so so immediately good. watch it. It's so okay. good. Um, and just, I mean, it, as you watch it, think about the character of Yankee, who's a, a man. Um, it's one of the best shows I think I've ever seen and really, really interesting if you have like the lenses of analyzing patriarchy. Um, but anyway, but back to the awakening, both men and women felt restricted in, in their abilities to live their authentic lives. However, at the time, especially in the late 1800s, men did get to go to school. They got to go to college. Women, almost no women went to college. They were lucky if they got to go to any school. Men did have the freedom to have multiple relationships with women and date around and play the field before marriage much more than young women did. And that's significant because later on, Edna talks about these wild, passionate crushes that she's had throughout her life that she was never able to act on. And so she has like this repressed desire in her that she's never been able to explore. Um, and men did were able to explore that more. Um, and then after marriage, if men had affairs after marriage, they were a lot more, you know, excused and people would look the other way. Whereas women, if they had an affair, were just destroyed. Um, men were able to pursue careers, um, whereas middle and upper class women were not. They just were truly you know, relegated to the home. And then, of course, men had the final word in law, in the church, in the home. They could come and go freely. They didn't have to explain themselves or justify their behaviors to women in ways that women did to, to men. And the law still saw women as property of, of their husbands. And, and really, in every aspect of society, women were taught to repress their own desires and their own voices. Um, so there really, truly were structural inequities that restricted women's lives more than they restricted men's lives. Um, one other point that I wanted to make, I there's a dinner party that really reveals the gender roles that are present right from childhood. So early on in the novel, the Edna and Leonce, they have the two little boys, like you said, Shauna, and the little Pontelier, boy, Pontelier boys um, were kind of like, ruling the roost and telling all the other kids what they could do. It says they were, quote, making their authority felt. And then this continues the quote. At an early hour in the evening, the Farival twins were prevailed upon to play the piano. These were girls, by the way. They were girls of 14, always clad in the virgin's colors, blue and white, having been dedicated to the Blessed Virgin at their baptism. 
And then it's interesting that the very next line is there's this parrot who keeps saying the words, allez-vous en, sapristi, which is, I think, like, get out of here, <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> it's like this, this, like a Greek chorus, like <laughs> making commentary on the action. But um, to continue the quote, a little girl performed a skirt dance in the center of the floor. The mother played her accompaniments and at the same time watched her daughter with greedy admiration and nervous apprehension. She need not have had she need have had no apprehension. The child was mistress of the situation. End quote. Okay, so stopping there, I I thought it was just so insightful, like those terms greedy admiration and nervous apprehension with a parent watching their child perform in front of people, right? If anytime your child's performing in public, in front of society, a parent is going to feel apprehension, right? Largely based on, you know, how is my child going to be perceived by my community? Will my child conform to the social norms and succeed in the way that they're supposed to so they'll be well-liked and so they'll have a place in society? And in this passage, it says, okay, the mother shouldn't have worried because the little girl was the mistress of the situation. She was succeeding. And so I just wanted to to stop there and say, okay, so what does that mean? What would it have meant for a little boy to be succeeding in his role in society? And what does it mean for a little girl to be succeeding? So here's what it says next. Quote, she had been properly dressed for the occasion in black tulle and black silk tights. Her little neck and arms were bare and her hair, artificially crimped, stood out like fluffy black plumes over her head. Her poses were full of grace and her little black shod toes twinkled as they shot out and upward with a rapidity and suddenness which were bewildering, end quote. Okay, so the very last sentence is fine, I guess, because it mentions something she does. She's a good dancer. But everything else focuses on how she looks, including her little neck and arms were bare. It, and it just reminded me of that sick feeling that I used to get sometimes when I would go to dance recitals when my kids were little, where the girls were were sexualized at such a young age. And the dances were not about athleticism, particularly, or, or really about artistic expression. But sometimes I just get this like, Oh, yucky feeling that these were like we were training these little girls to base their self-worth on their beauty, how they're being perceived, and especially how they're being perceived sexually by men. So I thought that was a really interesting scene that doesn't say that, but it says it by showing what's happening. And it's just a feeling that like I feel like as women you get, like you just know the difference between like you can watch art, you can watch dance that doesn't feel that way, that yeah. doesn't give you that icky feeling. Yeah. And then there's ones where you're like, no, the whole purpose of this is really just like conforming to those gender roles and proving that you can be sexual and beautiful and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And it's so upsetting. <laughs> yeah, it is. I love that Chopin includes that. And it just so many times in this book, I was like, I can't believe this was written in 1899. It felt I, so current. Yeah, I felt the same way. Everything I read, I was like, oh my gosh, that I kept going, that was then? Like, yeah. these are still things that we are so trying to be conscious of and dealing with. Totally, totally. Okay, a couple more quotes um, to demonstrate the these patriarchal constructs. Um this one was like one that I will take with me forever, I think. So there's this scene where Edna learns to swim. And this is a really big, important part of her awakening. She swims out to sea, 
kind of early in the book, and she almost drowns. She goes too far. She's not as strong as she thinks she is. And when she comes back to the shore, she tells her husband, she's like, I was, I could have drowned out there. She was really proud of herself, but she was a little bit like, uh, <laughs> that was scary. And her husband says this, quote, you were not so very far, my dear. I was watching you, he told her, end quote. Okay, so first of all, just that dismissiveness is so characteristic of this husband um, that he just kind of like downplays anything she says about her observations and her feelings. But I want to just quickly talk about this concept of him watching her, him standing on solid ground and kind of observing the scene. So just this past week, I have two art students in my life. That's my sister, Whitney, who's in college studying art, and then my daughter, Sophie, who's in high school and just like absolutely devours everything having to do with art history. Independently of each other, they they both brought up the topic of patriarchy within the visual arts, um, particularly in painting. So Sophie was telling me about this article she had read about the ubiquitous male gaze, like um, a man gazing at you, like looking. And so I already had that on my mind. And then my sister Whitney sent an article from her gender and sexuality class. And that article is entitled The Panopticon of Patriarchy. It's by Amelia Claire Wright, published in 2017 on the website Viva. And I really highly recommend looking it up. Um, Okay, so the main concept in this article is um, the panopticon. So I didn't know what a panopticon was necessarily. I I could tell like, okay, pan means all, opticon means seeing, so it's something all seeing. But apparently this was a specific building in the 18th and 19th century, um, an English philosopher named Jeremy Bentham designed a building that he called a panopticon, and it could be used as a really effective prison because there could be just one prison guard in the middle, and he could see almost every cell in the prison. So he could observe the prisoners, but the prisoners that surrounded the middle couldn't see him. So think of it kind of like as the eye of Sauron (laughs) in the middle of this building, like the all-seeing eye. So technically, that that guard in the middle, because of the design of the building, he could see almost all the cells, but not every single one, not every single person all at once. But one of the points was he didn't need to, because as long as the prisoners felt that he might be watching them um, and they couldn't see whether he was watching them or not, they were effectively um, under his control because they felt watched all the time. So then in the 20th century, the French philosopher uh, Michel Foucault developed this idea of the panopticon as a visual, like a metaphor for power. So um, Foucault says that if an institution creates a mechanism by which its members always feel watched, like Big Brother, they then that institution maintains power and control over them without needing to resort to physical coercion. So Um, Foucault says the power is visible and yet unverifiable. So you just always have this sense that like you're being watched over. So interestingly, in this scenario, the subjects, like the, the, the prisoners in the system, I guess, or the, the citizens in these societies, they become their own prison guards and they start to act as each other's 
prison guards, kind of maintaining the status quo and policing each other because they all have a sense of that all-seeing eye of that as, as a dominant force in the middle that exerts influence and authority over them at all times. And so that's one way of understanding the sense of the watcher is the one who acts. He's the subject. And then the watched person is the object that has no power. And that's like Simone de Beauvoir later will read how she talks about the man is the one and the woman is the other. So Amelia Clare Wright talks about this panopticon of patriarchy in art and in society, saying that um, it's often so subtle that people rarely notice or have the ability to protest it. And she, she quotes this BBC art series by John Berger, where he says, men look at women, women watch themselves being looked at. Um, and then Berger discusses the objectified female body in art, ranging from classic oil paintings to commercials in the 21st century. The picture is made to appeal to his sexuality. It has nothing to do with her sexuality. Women are there to feed an appetite, not to have any of their own. So the woman's sexuality is muffled, strangled, and deemed ultimately unimportant compared to that of the man. And that sentiment spreads and infects other aspects of life. A woman's ideas, actions, and desires are also perceived to be less important than those of the man. Um, and that's the end of that quote. So that concept of permeating omnipresent invisible systems that place women's ideas and women's actions and women's desires and their sexuality as less important than a man's to me, I, I read that. And I'm like, but that's the exact definition of patriarchy. And, and Kate Chopin does a masterful job of demonstrating that feeling in The Awakening, it, actually in a really masterful, subtle way, I thought. She really does. And it was interesting because when you put it in those terms, you really see it like in a different lens. So there's a few quotes where she shows this like presence of men's authority in the system where really what they think want is more important. And it's interesting because even if they don't exercise their ability to exert control, they get to decide if they want to or not, right? Like it's a choice yes. that they're making. So I thought it was really interesting. There's this quote and it says, quote, Edna and her father had an almost violent dispute upon the subject of her refusal to attend her sister's wedding. Mr. Pontillier declined to interfere to interpose either his influence or his authority. He was following Dr. Mandelet's advice and letting her do as she liked, end quote. So we see her father actually trying to exert his will and then her husband deliberately choosing not to, but he has the choice, like he could have exerted his will. And then right after that, we see that her father actually encourages the husband to exert his control, to manage his wife, which, again, just so objectifying to treat her as like an object that these two men are talking about how they should handle. And uh, it says, quote, you are too lenient, too lenient by farliance, asserted the colonel. Authority, coercion are what is needed. Put your foot down good and hard. The only way to manage a wife. Take my word for it. End quote. Gross. Oh, <laughs> just <laughs> so gross. It's so I know infuriating and plus like that's her dad her that's her her own father talking about his daughter that way and like telling her husband to 
squash her. It just is so upsetting to me. And it's it's a really great reminder. I'm so glad you pointed out that Leonce could have exerted more control over Edna. So that shows that's just an unjust system. But it's nice that he doesn't. He doesn't ever hit her. He's super like dismissive, but he doesn't scream at her or threaten her. And like when he goes out of town, he sends boxes of sweets. And so there's this other quote, too, where um, like Edna's girlfriends all say oh, they all declared that Mr. Pontellier was the best husband in the world. And Mrs. Pontellier was forced to admit that she knew of none better. Right. So he's self-centered and insensitive and he's a total jerk sometimes, but he's not a complete brute. And I actually really I like that Kate Chopin does create her husband's character as that he's not a monster. Um, cause it's like, it's easy to see, I think it's really useful, right? Because it's easy to see the harm in patriarchy when a man is violent. It's harder to see it when he's a pretty nice guy. And so, um, in some ways it's almost a harder, um, oppression to break out of because it's harder for the woman to see it and to confront it and deal with it. And if she does, then she can really easily be called too sensitive, like she's overreacting because he's not he's not beating her. And so if right. she complains, then she's just being hysterical or right. overreacting. Yeah. And I think it's just interesting because I feel like the way that he's portrayed is that he wants to not have those reactions, right? Like he wants things mm-hmm. to be okay but it's all on his terms, which is what he doesn't have to look at because he's the male, right? Like he doesn't Mm. see the oppression of those kinds of feelings on his part. So like there's one scene where we really get to see the character of their relationship. And so he comes home after a late night at the hotel where like all the men hang out and he comes in and he's just excited and talkative and Edna's asleep. And so he wakes her up and wants to talk to her about everything that happened in his day and tell her all the gossip he heard and having this whole conversation. And so she's basically half asleep and barely paying attention to him. And his response is that he gets really irritated that she won't pay attention to him. So he goes and checks on their boys and he decides that one of them has a fever and wakes Edna up to go take care of him. And she claims that he's fine when he went to bed and it's probably fine now And Leonce begins to lecture her about her neglect of the children and basically says, tells her like for how much he does, all the things he handles for their life, all the work that he provides, he can't also be responsible for the children and worry about them. And so she finally gives in and goes and checks on the boys. And we can assume that they're fine because she comes back and sits on the bed, but is mad. Like she basically refuses to engage with him. So he finishes his his cigar and goes to bed and she's thoroughly awake at this point and just begins to cry. And she goes out on the porch, which I was just like, probably because she doesn't want to disturb anybody, you know, and just continues to have this long cry. And you just see this part of him. That's it's not overtly, you know, brutal, but it's very self-centered. It's very Mm -hmm. like self it just about him where she just feels like she doesn't even have space to take up her own being. Mm -hmm. And it just sets up this, uh, you know, tone in their relationship. That's just so hard to Mm -hmm. watch. (laughs) Totally. I hated that part. It was so painful. And then, yeah. And then when he's ready to go to sleep, he just like rolls over and goes to sleep. He just is so self-centered. Okay. And that I actually wanted to read that quote about when she was crying. Cause I think it, 
is such a telling part. So I'll just read it, read it real quick. Um, quote, she could not have told why she was crying. Such experiences as the foregoing were not uncommon in her married life. They seemed never before to have weighed much against the abundance of her husband's kindness and a uniform devotion which had come to be tacit and self-understood. An indescribable oppression, which seemed to generate in some unfamiliar part of her consciousness, filled her whole being with a vague anguish. It was like a shadow, like a mist passing across her soul's summer's day. It was strange and unfamiliar. It was a mood. She did not sit there inwardly upbraiding her husband, lamenting at fate, which had directed her footsteps to the path which they had taken. She was just having a good cry all to herself. Um, I think that that quote is like it represents kind of the very beginning of the awakening where she's starting to feel all the feelings. But she's like, I don't even know. I, this isn't a big deal. I'm just crying. I, I'm just having a cry. People cry. Right. She's kind of like not identifying what what had happened. But but the feeling is starting to come in like a storm. Yeah. Um, there was one more thing that I wanted to bring up really quick. Um, you referred to it earlier, Shauna, where um, her husband, Leonce, almost like he doesn't want to be mean, I guess, right. but um, but he is. And you made a really good point about this part. So I'm going to read the quote and then um, I wanted to hear what you thought about it, because when we were talking about it earlier, I thought it was super insightful. So her husband says, so when the husband's talking to the doctor in that scene you talked about before, the husband says, quote, you know, I have a quick temper, but I don't want to quarrel or be rude to a woman, especially my wife. Yet I'm driven to it and feel like 10,000 devils after I've made a fool of myself. She's making it devilishly uncomfortable for me. He went on nervously. She's got some sort of notion in her head concerning the eternal rights of women end quote. Yes. So what was your thought on that? Reading that was just like, there's just the parts that stuck out to me were, um, he describes his reaction as something he's driven to, right? So it's like not his fault. It's something that's happening to him. It's like so reactionary. And so he doesn't have to take any responsibility for the interaction. Like he doesn't think about what he might be doing or how Edna's feeling. It's just all about that his reaction is to be that way. So that's obviously what he's going to do. And then that he recognizes that he's uncomfortable. Like I just, that word struck me so hard because basically what that means is that he liked his life. He wants to go back to where he's being catered to. He can do whatever he wants without consequence. And her feelings are making him uncomfortable. And so instead of embracing her feelings and connecting with her and wanting to grow with her and do all of these like relationship things. He just wants to go back to being comfortable. And when we get to the end of the story, I think it's really important that aspect of their relationship because it's where he doesn't want to move outside of the way their life has been because he likes his comfort. Mm, Totally. Yeah, I think that's such a great insight and that sometimes people do lash out in anger and rage and like lose their temper just because they're uncomfortable and they don't know how to sit with something new, something that makes them uncomfortable. And so they lash out at the person who's making them uncomfortable. So, um, okay, that's all I had on the patriarchy part. So um, 
let's go into motherhood, Shauna, and you can take it away. Yeah. So um, her experience with motherhood is really important to the story. Um, and the obviously the role of mother has been a topic in a lot of your previous episodes. Like it's so intertwined with womanhood. Um, so here we can see like how mothers are portrayed at this time and the expectations on their role and behavior, and then how Edna fits into the role because she basically, um, there's just a lack on her part. Um, and it just comes through pieces in the story, but her husband and other women in the story definitely feel like she lacks in terms of how she's a mother. Like she's not, you know, natural. She's not good at it. There's something lacking in her. Um, and so after the scene where he, her husband criticizes her parenting and, you know, says that he can't also worry about the children because he's doing so much for their life. Um, we see this quote where it's, she's compared to what a woman should be like. So it says, quote, in short, Mrs. Pontellier was not a mother woman. The mother women seemed to prevail that summer at Grand Isle. It was easy to know them, fluttering about with extended, protecting wings when any harm, real or imaginary, threatened their precious brood. They were women who idolized their children, worshipped their husbands, and esteemed it a holy privilege to efface themselves and as individuals and grow wings as ministering angels, end quote. So we see the embodiment of a mother woman and her friend Adele, and she actually openly expresses to Edna at various points about how she should act and wants her to conform. But the language in this quote is so interesting because the words that they use where mothers are supposed to idolize their children, worship their husbands and be angels, it's just got like this religious overtone that really shows how they were trying to cage women into this role. And her character's really contrasted to other women who are doing it right. But to do it right means diminishing oneself as an individual and catering to their husband and children as if they themselves don't have needs, mm -hmm. which is so hurtful. Like mm -hmm. that's not where you want any woman to be or any no. person to be, you know? No, it's not mentally healthy. And I have to just add here too, really quick, there's this long sappy poem um, that was written by a man in England in 1854. It's called The Angel in the House. And um, it's like kind of this crystallization of that ideology of the the self-sacrificing woman. And um, he like just praises his wife that she totally just annihilates herself for her family and that that makes her an angel. And anyway, that poem really impacted English and American society so much so that we're going to do an episode on it in a few weeks. It's um, Virginia Woolf was still writing about that poem, The Angel in the House in the 1930s. And so that will come up later. But I, it just made me think of that, that, how you're bringing out that angel imagery and that that is the right way to be self-sacrificing is the right way to be a mother. So, And Edna really like butts up against that from pretty early mm -hmm. on where she mm -hmm. just, she really, and it's so funny that I feel like even the way I describe it, she lacks the self-sacrificing and overbearing relationship with her children, which mm -hmm. shouldn't be a fault. <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's just the way it's described in the story, but it's really considered something faulty in her character. Um, 
but she tries to explain it to her friend. So it says, quote, Edna had once told Madame Ratignolle that she would never sacrifice herself for her children or for anyone and says, I would give up the unessential. I would give my money. I would give my life for my children, but I wouldn't give myself, end quote. And so just, I think that's such a strong statement about the difference between her life and her inner self. Like she's basically saying she would die for her children, but she's not willing to live a life where she can't be her own person, which is totally against what, like you said, like the self-sacrificing woman is just supposed to cater to her family's needs and basically not exist. And that's like the idealized woman, which is not how we want women to feel or be treated. Um, But so she really struggles with her desire for independence and her self-identity and then this duty to her children. And it really ends up being the last straw for her um, because she figures out like she releases her attachment to her husband and his money. She moves out of the house and like starts making her own money with painting. Um, She really gives up the societal norms of how she should act. But she realizes that her children have a claim to her that she can't throw away. She can't remove herself from um, and really struggles with it. Uh, It says, quote, but I don't want anything but my own way. That is wanting a good deal, of course, when you have to trample upon the lives, the hearts, the prejudices of others. But no matter. Still, I shouldn't want to trample upon the little lives, end quote. Mm. So she really battles this. Um, She wants her own way, but she doesn't want to hurt her children. And it really starts to hit hard right towards the end. Um, She says, quote, still she remembered Adele's voice whispering, think of the children, think of them. She meant to think of them. That determination had driven into her soul like a death wound. And then again, quote, The children appeared before her like antagonists who had overcome her, who had overpowered and sought to drag her into the soul slavery for the rest of her days. So it was just really hard to read those. I feel like the quotes really address her soul and like the impact that the role of mother defined by her society like had on her soul. She can't create a life where she's a mother and free to be herself because the demands of the role are too restrictive. And it's interesting that the only independent woman that we meet in the story is Mademoiselle Reese, and she doesn't have children. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so it's there. Women are presented with like a binary choice. It's either or. You can either pursue your own interests and talents like Mademoiselle Reese, who's a pianist, and she's a, a quote unquote spinster, right? She's not married. She doesn't have kids. Right. Then you can be independent and you can be a self like a, a developed self, or you can have a family. And and you can't do both. But as you pointed out too, one thing that's occurring to me like right now that I hadn't even thought about very much really was that the that role of mother was so incredibly narrowly defined of what it meant to be a good mother. And it makes me wonder like if Edna had had more latitude in like how do you want to be a mother? Then yeah. she probably wouldn't have felt so like that quote that you just read. It just broke my heart was she felt like her children were antagonists and that they were like they were the ones dragging her soul into slavery. And I just think that's so sad. Her children 
it didn't need to be that way. Like, why right. did she perceive them that way? Because when I think of my children, like sometimes, yes, it's it's hard as an adult to have to be responsible to these little people. And yes, you have to make sacrifices, but there's so much joy in parenthood. And I probably have been able to experience a lot of that joy because I live now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I feel like I've been able to just be myself as a parent, much more than definitely than Edna felt like she could, right? She felt like if I can't be like Adele, then I'm just not a mother. And right. and because that type of motherhood just felt so, so restrictive to her. And I just think I wish she could have just been herself as a mom. She probably could have been a wonderful mother and derived a lot of joy from it if she had been able to anyway. Yes. Well, the other thing that I keep thinking about is that Gwen, that uh, Glennon Doyle quote that you shared with me this week. So, do you want to talk about that really? Oh quick? yeah. So I, if you, I mean, if anybody hasn't heard of it, so Untamed uh, was a memoir that Glennon Doyle came out with in March um, of this last year, 2020, and it's been number one New York Times bestseller, and it's just like been everywhere. I feel like, especially in women's circles, um, my mom actually. I gave it to me, sent it to me to read um, or like right after it came out. Um, So it's been like a really special thing this year, but it's totally amazing. Highly recommend it, but it's literally a memoir and it's her awakening. Like it's really the entire story describes and goes through a lot of these stages of her awakening and it's 2020, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's current Um, Mm -hmm. But one of the quotes that came up on my Instagram this week was, quote, say the thing you must say, go where you must go, leave what you must leave, do what you must do, trust yourself. When they say you seem out of control, you say, thank you. That's the plan for the rest of my life, end quote. And it just felt so relevant to Edna, right? We're talking such a long time ago, but she essentially took this oath. Like that's what she was trying to do. And she's Doyle's encouraging the same awakening that Edna's going through today, right? Like Mm -hmm. she's really emphasizing that living your own inner truth without apologies or compromises. And it just, there were so many parts of the book. Like there's one part where they talk about her kind of waking up as like, she looks like a wild animal. And Mm -hmm. Glennon has this whole part in her story where she talks about a cheetah in the zoo And watching the cheetah transform into looking like a wild animal after looking really tame. And just like this inner part of you that's very real, that's so easy to forget when you feel caged. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but the the whole book, I felt like there were so many parts that really reminded me of the way that Glennon Doyle talks about like awakening, waking up, being your true self. That was super relevant to this story. Hmm. That's awesome. Well, I think, I think we will talk a little bit later because I, I totally like agree with so much. And I feel like my, I I really feel that resonating with me, but I'm also cautious because especially like the part where that quote says, leave what you must leave. And then I do just feel like, but she does have children and it does meaning Edna, right. And it, it actually does cause damage if a mother abandons her children. And so it is more complicated than like, quit your job. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and and there are some things that you can leave without damaging anybody. And there are some things that if you leave them, 
you're handing a huge, huge psychological burden to, you know, a child that didn't ask for that and like how to be responsible by, while also honoring yourself. Like that's one of the big questions that this book brings up and we'll get to that a little bit later too, but. Um, so I think there's like two more parts about the motherhood aspect. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this last one is really like right at the end of the story and um, kind of like her final thoughts on her relationship that I feel like, again, just hit really hard. Um, so it says, quote, she thought of Leonce and the children. They were part of her life, but they need not have thought that they could possess her body and soul, end quote. And I felt like this was just such a powerful feeling for her to have at the end, because it really implies like the possibility of life with a different outcome. And I just thought like, if the men in her life had felt and acted differently and seen her as a whole human being and like helped embrace her awakening with her, then the outcome would have been different. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I also made me wonder like whether it was important for the story that her children were both boys because what would she have felt if she had had a daughter, right? Like what kinds of, mm. well, how would her awakening have been different if she had had a daughter to look at and think about her experience? And it just made me think, cause I feel like I've had so many different feelings about my place in the world and my experience as I watched my kids grow and go through their own experience. Like you get self-reflective and I definitely took a big hit when I had my daughter after having two boys and just thought about what she would go through as a girl and as a woman in the world. And like, how did I want to be a woman who presented possibility to her, right? Like, how am I showing her what it's like to be a woman in the world and what I want to teach her, how I can support her, right? And Mm. I really think it was actually important for them to have, for Edna to have sons, because it really made it feel very oppressive. Like it was much more oppressive to her when she talks about that they could possess her body and soul. Like she was physically a piece of property to her husband. I mean, with all the things we've talked about laws and the way that the society was set up, but she felt that way with her children too. Like she was their possession. She was supposed to just do what they needed her to do for them. And she couldn't rectify that that was true. She just couldn't Mm. deal with that, you know? Wow. I did not notice that at all. And I think that is really interesting to think of how the story would have been different if she'd had girls. That's so insightful. (laughs) It's really interesting. (laughs) Such a great point. Um, And then the last part about motherhood was about her experience with birth, which was really kind of funny to read I had to read it twice this mm-hmm. section where she goes to Adele I read it twice she, yeah she got called for Adele's and, and but they kept calling it like an affliction like there was yeah. something going on with Adele and I couldn't figure out what it was and I had to read it twice until I realized that they were talking about her having like her in birth she was in right. labor in, um, yeah and they don't I even the describe it that way and so I read it twice But the words that they use to describe it are so negative. It's just so they agonizing, suffering, uneasy, vague dread, inward agony, scene of torture. (laughs) Like, and these are Edna's words. These aren't even Mm -hmm. 
like she's not even experiencing the labor. She's just watching somebody else. And this is how she describes it. And she's so disturbed by it. And then she remembers her own, which was so sad to me. And it says, quote, she recalled faintly an ecstasy of pain, the heavy odor of chloroform, a stupor which had deadened sensation, and an awakening to find a little new life in which she had given being added to the great unnumbered multitude of souls that come and go, end quote. And I just, it made me wonder like what we know about birth and the importance of bonding and the first hour and all of these things that I feel like we've really tried to embrace now, like how important important the process is. I wonder if she would have felt more motherly if she had experienced her birth, right? Like they basically Mm -hmm. knocked her out and had Mm -hmm. the baby come out, right? Mm -hmm. And it just seems like that in and of itself would have been really hard on her emotionally to feel like she wasn't in control or like didn't get to have the experience of bringing her, you know, having Mm -hmm. the actual childbirth um, and how much that affected her. Like, I think that there's been a lot to say about depression and postpartum and all these things that we're trying to get a better understanding of. And basically her experience would have made her bonding with her children even harder. Right. Totally. That's such a good point. That's another thing. Yeah. That I didn't think about that at all. And that that is so interesting to point out all those different ways that she was disconnected from her children. And and that's just, yeah, again, so insightful because I don't get the sense that Kate Chopin was making a comment on that. I think as a product of her time, I don't even know that she noticed that she was, right. I don't know, who knows. But yeah, from a 21st century perspective, knowing what we know, that doesn't, it kind of puts her, it doesn't give her any advantages in bonding with her children, like you said. That's really interesting. Okay. Um, So our last topic to discuss is the actual awakening um, itself. And and we've alluded to some of these points, but we'll bring out a few um, devices that Kate Chopin uses to demonstrate Edna's awakening. Um, Like, like we've already kind of described Edna had been kind of sleepwalking through her life, doing everything that she was supposed to do, but not really living, living deliberately or, or authentically. So there are a few ways that Chopin um, really illustrates that Edna is waking up. The first one is she, she has this conversation with her friend Adele and it says, quote, she was flushed and felt intoxicated with the sound of her own voice and the unaccustomed taste of candor. It muddled her like wine or like a first breath of freedom, end quote. So just, I just wanted to highlight that because um, I really related to it, like to that, that feeling of hearing myself express my real true thoughts, my real true feelings to a friend. And sometimes just the act of saying things out loud is liberating even just that right and and yeah for her so it much. was right it can really help um and sometimes we discover things about what we think and feel by the act of saying them and so i thought that was a really neat part that chopin includes um and that and that she says it was so unaccustomed to taste 
honesty in her mouth, mm-hmm. right? Because um, she hadn't been able to speak freely. Um, another thing that Chopin writes about is there's this recurring um, memory that Edna has of when she was a little girl and she was walking through a field. So this is at a point in the story where Edna is starting to realize she has a, a huge crush on this man who isn't her husband, um, Robert. And um, Edna's friend Adele, the ideal mother, asks Edna what she's thinking about. And Edna says, Edna it has been thinking about Robert, but she doesn't want to admit that to Adele. And Edna says, uh, I don't remember now. I was just walking diagonally across a big field. My sunbonnet obstructed the view. I could see only the stretch of green before me, and I felt as if I must walk on forever without coming to the end of it. I don't remember whether I was frightened or pleased. Likely as not, it was Sunday, she laughed, and I was running away from prayers, read in a spirit of gloom by my father that chills me yet to think of, end quote. And that that memory of the open meadow, where she's a little girl walking across this big, beautiful green open meadow, it comes back to her in the final scene where she's decided to take her life and she sees herself in this open meadow and field. Um But I just thought those memories of being a child, of running away from those first restrictive oppressive rules, and in this case, it's it's represented by church and her father, um, you know, reading the scriptures in this really maybe, you know, fire and brimstone way. And she's she's running away from that repressive church and home environment. And I just thought that was interesting to get back in touch with what that felt like as a child to, to run free, right? Yeah. And I thought it was great that we got to see her as a child, like that she remembers this because it reminds us that her awakening is going back to something that she Mm. knew, like Mm. her suppression was actually an experience she went through and learned and had to take in. So like she had a role in a character that was a facade and now she's trying to return to herself. Like she wasn't born being Yeah, You know, she had this freedom. She had this sense of self. And then she basically put it away because of all of the things she experienced, all of the restrictive roles and all the things she was taking in. And now she's kind of realizing she can go back to that Mm -hmm. freedom and having these memories of like what that would be like. Oh my gosh. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I'm just so much. I can relate so so much much to that. (laughs) Totally. I mean, I'm just remembering memories from especially like I remember this one time Eric and I went on a trip together and we were running through there was just a city and we were running to catch a train and I think I had Lindsay and Lucy at the time and it was the first time I'd been away from them in maybe four or five years Mm -hmm. and that feeling of like exhilaration of just being a self out in the world and running to catch a train because I wanted to catch a train and I didn't have to bring anyone with me and just that exhilaration. I was like, it's me. Like I didn't realize I had been so like kind of, I had drifted so far away from myself that when I felt it again, I, I like, it almost made me cry with the joy of it. And again, we make sacrifices for our children and that's part of life. And that's part of being a grown up. but, um, boy, it's not healthy to get too far away from that. No. And that's where I feel like, you know, we talk now about like self-care and it sounds Mm -hmm. really like, I think it's been made to feel like a pampering yourself. But to me, like that self-care moment is returning to that 
as many times as you can to remind yourself yeah. it's there so you don't get too far away. Cause you're like, yes. if you, if you have enough of those moments, you don't have to have that every second of every day. Like life in this world is responsibility and we do a lot of important things for other people. And, you know, we have to manage things, but like the number of times you can go back to that and like center and feel yourself mm. is so impactful. And so you watch somebody like Edna, who's just literally never done that. Like, mm-hmm has not felt that way since she was however old she is, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like the awakening becomes really dramatic and very intense because she hasn't had the opportunity to have those feelings for such a long time. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I, and I think we'll mention this a little bit later too, but just like how to avoid this happening. And I think you just hit it on the head. Like that's exactly how you, make sure that you stay mentally healthy all the way through. That's one of the the ways of doing that, right? Is to, um, yeah, I love that self-care and, and staying in touch with nature will do that, right? And just, again, just like being, being a human and realizing you are your own self alive on this earth. Um, the next quote actually has to do with that a little bit too, because um, Chopin describes Edna's awakening um, in very, very physical terms, like that she like kind of wakes up in her body and realizes she has a body and, and like little kids know they have a body. They are a body, you know what I mean? Like, um, but we lose that along the way somewhere. Um, and there's this, and this is the quote I was referring to in the, when, in the introduction, when I said that there's a scene where she wakes up metaphorically and physically and she's starving, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, literally and metaphorically. So Edna has um, fallen asleep and she's taken this long, long nap on this tiny little island away from everything. And so it's, you know, very much a symbol that she's left society. She falls asleep all by herself and then she wakes up and um, she's there with Robert, but Robert isn't in the room at the time. So this, this describes what she does when she wakes up. Quote, she stretched her strong limbs that ached a little. She ran her fingers through her loosened hair for a while. She looked at her round arms as she held them straight up and rubbed them one after the other, observing closely as if it were something she saw for the first time, the fine, firm quality and texture of her flesh. When she woke up, her eyes were bright and wide awake and her face glowed. She was very hungry. And that's the end of the quote. And it's kind of spliced together with a few different things in that paragraph. But I just wanted to read that because, um, yeah, it's just so powerful that she's like running her feet. It's almost like she's never even felt her hair before. And she's like seeing her arms for the first time since she was a little kid. And she she's like realizing that she has that she has a body. And then she starts to feel after that, she starts to feel sexual desire right and like oh my gosh like I'm alive and she it was like she had just been anesthetized um for her whole life and she's starting to like the numbness is wearing off and she's going like oh man I'm feeling a bunch of stuff um and then the last two things were um from her awakening one is the power of music and that I grew up as a musician um 
I maybe that's an overstatement. I grew up doing a lot of music. <laughs> I was um, I played the piano and sang. That was my whole life when I was um, little. And the Chopin, like the Frederick Chopin, the composer that Mad- Mademoiselle Reese plays on the piano. I just um, it just was like personally meaningful to me that that Edna was listening to this music that I love from the Romantic period. Um, but I'll read the quote. Quote. The very first chords which Mademoiselle Rhys struck upon the piano sent a keen tremor down Mrs. Pontellier's spinal column. It was not the first time she had heard an artist at the piano. Perhaps it was the first time she was ready. Perhaps the first time her being was tempered to take an impress of the abiding truth. The very passions themselves were aroused within her soul, swaying it, lashing it as the waves daily beat upon her splendid body. She trembled, and she was choking, and the tears blinded her. Um, that's the end of the quote. And then, so Edna just sits there sobbing. Everybody, it's like a soiree, and Madame, Mademoiselle Reese is playing Chopin, and everyone's just like politely clapping, politely listening to the music, and Edna is sobbing in the corner. And so um, Mademoiselle Reese comes over and and pats her on the shoulder and says, you're the only one worth playing for. Because <laughs> Edna gets it. Edna feels what, what that music is meant to do, right? Yeah. Um, and that's another thing that can wake people up, right, is the power of art, great art, great music. And um, that that beauty has the the capacity to really penetrate deep into our souls. So... Um, and then the last thing that Chopin uses to um, kind of highlight or to describe Edna's waking up, it's it's a metaphor that runs throughout the book, is the power of the sea. So I'll read this quote that describes Edna going to the beach, because, of course, she's on an island, but we learn that Edna didn't know how to swim at the beginning of the story. So here's this passage. It says, quote, Edna had attempted all summer to learn to swim. She had received instructions from both the men and women, in some instances from the children. A certain ungovernable dread hung about her when in the water, unless there was a hand nearby that might reach out and reassure her. But that night, she was like a little, tottering, stumbling, clutching child who of a sudden realizes its powers and walks for the first time alone, boldly and with overconfidence. She could have shouted for joy. She did shout for joy. As with a sweeping stroke or two, she lifted her body to the surface of the water. A feeling of exultation overtook her, as if some power of significant import had been given her to control the working of her body and her soul. She grew daring and reckless, overestimating her strength. She wanted to swim far out where no woman had swum before. How easy it is, she thought. It's nothing, she said aloud. Why did I not discover before that it was nothing? Think of the time I have lost, splashing about like a baby. She would not join the groups in their sports, but intoxicated with her newly conquered power, she swam out alone. End quote. So, I mean, we don't even need to, like, analyze that too deeply like the metaphor is so clear and so powerful right where she's like why did I not know like and I wasted all this time and um but she feels that power in her body but at the same time she knows like swimming out to the ocean is dangerous and this is part of the tragedy that I guess we've we've kind of surfaced this issue that 
She doesn't have any experience swimming in the ocean. She's never been able to have any experience. And so she's like doing it for the first time without any practice and, and independence. And so there's this like this pull of the ocean and she's, she's um, feeling her strength and her power waking up. And at the same time, you're like, be careful out there. Like, yeah. And then we know how it ends. So anyway, um, but that's, yeah. What were your thoughts on, on kind of the effects of her awakening, Shauna? What? It's, it's so hard. Cause I feel like you see all these positive effects, but then there's obviously places where it's not, you know, it's, it's like harder to watch. So mm. I was thinking that when we see the positive effects, it's really internal, right? Like we see them in her, we see that she becomes aware of like her wants and her needs, her emotions. She starts to set boundaries that establish like her own role. Um, but I really like this quote where they describe her like sense of self that comes. It says, quote, in short, Mrs. Pontellier was beginning to realize her position in the universe as a human being and to recognize her relations as an individual to the world within and about her. This may seem like a ponderous weight of wisdom to descend upon the soul of a young woman of 28, perhaps more wisdom than the Holy Ghost is usually pleased to vouchsafe for any woman. But the beginning of things, of a world especially, is necessarily vague, tangled, chaotic, and exceedingly disturbing. Disturbing. How few of us ever emerge from such a beginning? How many souls perish in its tumult? So I feel like just seeing how exciting it is for her to grow and expand her worldview. Like you said, she's been sleepwalking and now she like has this blossom in her and it's not described as safe, right? It's not described like easy. If you use all these words where it's really hard to go through that experience, but she really is moving through it. Like it's really important. It's like a big deal. And then when she decides to move into her own space um, where she can like support herself finan financially and not be just a piece of property, she has this fulfilled feeling, which I loved. It says, quote, there was a feeling of having descended in the social scale with a corresponding sense of having risen in the spiritual. Hmm. Every step which she took toward relieving herself from obligations added to her strength and expansion as an individual. She began to look with her own eyes to see and to apprehend the deeper undercurrents of life. No longer was she content to feed upon opinion when her own soul invited her. So I thought that was so powerful, like that she basically is giving up all of the things most people want materially. Like she's moving into a smaller house. She's not going to be provided by her husband's financial support, right? Like she just wants to be on her own, but she feels this spiritual sense in her that's grown where mm -hmm. she's her own person. Yeah. Um, and then she even grapples with kind of like whether or not it was a good thing. Like, I feel like, they describe, you know, ignorance is bliss. Like she could have lived in the sleepwalking state forever and she would have been provided for financially and had a nice life and all those kinds of things. But she says, quote, perhaps it is better to wake up after all, even to suffer rather than to remain a dupe to illusions all one's life. So I feel like she has this sense of her life being harder and she's really like 
dealing with real emotions, real pain. You know, she's like lost Robert. She has all these feelings, but really is considering whether she would have been okay to live the life she was before, right? Like whether Mm -hmm. she would have wanted to stay sleepwalking if it meant that she didn't have to experience kind of the pain that she was going through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And and like we talked about before, like her waking up is causing a lot of discomfort in her marriage because her husband is like, what is going on with my wife? And whereas like we talked about that scene before where he comes in from, you know, a night and just like he sets the tone and the terms for their communication. And he's like, go check on the kids. I'm going to sleep. You know, um, she starts standing up to him and there's another scene where he orders her to come to bed and she's just like, no, thanks. And she won't. And he keeps like, he gets really grumpy and mad. And she's like, no. And she's, she says, quote, I suppose this is what you would call unwomanly, but I have got into a habit of expressing myself. It doesn't matter to me. And you may think me unwomanly if you like, End quote. So yeah, that's a very different Edna than the one that just goes out onto the patio and cries, yep. right? And um, there's this other fantastic image where she's decided to divorce her husband. Well, she can't divorce her husband. That's not true. She has no power to divorce. She's decided to move out of his house and live her own life. She knows that legally um, he's the one who has control over the marriage. If he doesn't want a divorce, then he won't grant her one. She has no power. But she's moved out and she throws this dinner party. And it says uh, she's she's kind of like presiding at the head of the table and she's decked out in like her jewels and stuff. And it says, quote, there was something in her attitude, in her whole appearance when she leaned her head against the high backed chair and spread her arms, which suggested the regal woman, the one who rules, who looks on, who stands alone. End quote. And I thought in in context of like we talked about the panopticon of patriarchy where Robert's the one who stands alone. Robert's the one who rules and who looks on. And she's just like the person who gets looked at. Um, she's escaping the panopticon. She is really like escaping those that that restrictive framework of of patriarchy. She's the regal woman. She's the one who looks at everybody else from her vantage point of power. And um, she further um, kind of demonstrates this new attitude when, so Robert comes back um, and they admit their feelings for each other and, and they're wanting to be together. Both of them are. And then Robert says to her, um, he says, quote, I've heard of husbands who set their wives free. So he's saying, maybe maybe your husband will let you get a divorce and then you can be my wife. <laughs> and he's like, we can transfer you, you, you know, from your one. ownership, the title from one man to another man. Um, and he is the man that she wants to be with. But so I, th- I was really, like, really surprised by her answer. She says, quote, I am no longer one of Mr. Pontellier's possessions to dispose of or not. I give myself where I choose. If he were to say, here, Robert, take her and be happy. She's yours. I should laugh at you both. End quote. Um, so, I mean, that is that just so to me demonstrates her transformation. Um, and and it's interesting, too. And I think this is partly what leads to her despair that leads to her suicide is that she has escaped from the system. But Robert hasn't. Robert knows he loves her. 
But he's like, let's see if we can get his permission. And she's just like, I don't think you get it. Like, right. <laughs> I we don't need his permission. And Robert kind of can't go there with her. I think it was interesting, too, just thinking about it now that Edna really has this awakening. Like, she really comes to terms with the system and, like, has this whole different feeling about herself. And since Robert doesn't, like, they really can't see eye to eye. Like, he doesn't have the same experience. I think the fact that she says that and then he leaves is basically kind of a cop-out on his part, just that mm. she is willing for to be independent and, like, I'm not his and it's not up to either of you what I do. And it kind of, he's like, the fact that she's willing to make that kind of stance, he's like, I don't want to be a part of you making a mess of things, you know, mm -hmm. or like where he just, he's, you know, I love you too much to be a part of this. And he thinks mm -hmm. he's kind of protecting her and it ends up being part of what just sends her down, mm -hmm. realizing that it's not what she wants it to be, you know, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. so rough. Yeah. It's so hard. But we really see like, then the negative aspects of her awakening really come in her relationships with other people and kind of where her being kind of immature in the choices that she makes. Um, it's, it feels positive for her internally, but then the way she acts it out generally just alienates her husband and her children. And she doesn't really consider the consequences of her actions. Um, and it says that, quote, she began to do as she liked and to feel as she liked, which is important, but she really becomes reckless. And she has this affair while her husband's away and her children are away. And it even says that after she kisses, um, I'll say, I'll say. Mm -hmm. Yes. After she kills us, I'll say she cries mm -hmm. and she deals with, quote, an overwhelming feeling of irresponsibility and just a general regret because she sees that her actions aren't really aligned with what she wants, which is Robert. But she succumbs to this base desire to, like, help feed her awakening. But she does it without the integrity of what she actually wants or feels will help fulfill her soul. Right. So she disengages from her children even more. Um, and she's more capable of attention. So like she goes to visit them and she really loves them. She's fully present with them. She really cares for them. It's, it's a very different experience of that part, describing her as a mother. But then as soon as she's away from them, it kind of dissipates again, where she's not engaged in that part of her life. Um, but it said, quote, it was with a wrench and a pang that Edna left her children. She carried away with her the sound of their voices and touch of their cheeks. All along the journey homeward, their presence lingered with her like a memory of a delicious song. But by the time she had regained the city, the song was no the song no longer echoed in her soul. She was again alone. Mm. So I feel like she. While she finds space for herself she doesn't really work to bring anybody else into this new life. And she just wants to kind of shed as much of her life as possible and really disengages from her responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And 
she it does I guess what I was saying before about her like not having experience in the ocean and she's like flailing a little bit kind of like yeah. a child and she's not able to act I, I love how you said like with integrity it's not actually even what she wants so she's she's not being very mature and careful in the way that she makes choices as she's awakening and there's yeah there's that remember that scene when um, Leonce, her husband, had been such a jerk to her. And she runs to her room and like yanks off her wedding ring and throws <laughs> it on the floor. And it's just like it a stomps. toddler. Yeah, stomps yeah. on her ring. And she's like, it won't even break. And then she throws a vase at the floor and it crashes and shatters. And so it does, it feels a little bit like a toddler having a tantrum or or a teenager rebelling and saying, you can't control me, right? And like throwing things around. But I do, I have, I like have compassion for her because she's just never, she never got to have a teenagehood or a young adulthood where she did kind of self like differentiate from her parents and wake up and and discover who she was. And so she's going through those stages later in life and in a place where she has these connections and she's in relationships with people where now if she does that, she's going to really hurt people. And it's just yeah. so unfortunate, I guess. She just doesn't have the tools um, to take in the new information of like, oh, things are different than I thought. Now, how do I move forward as an adult? She she just doesn't have the tools. So, um, And actually, there's a quote really quick that I wanted to read. It says, quote, she was not seeking refreshment or help from any source, either external or from within. She was blindly following whatever impulse moved her as if she had placed herself in alien hands for direction and freed her soul of responsibility. The past was nothing to her, offered no lesson which she was willing to heed. The future was a mystery which she never attempted to penetrate. The present alone was significant. End quote. Um, so yeah, that just kind of describes this 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 predicament that she's in, this position she's in where she's not looking to external sources like a really wise friend, like Adele, who's saying, please remember the children. And she's just like, I'm not listening to anybody from the outside. And then it says she's not looking inward. So she doesn't even have access to her own moral compass that would be guiding her, like, like you said, to have integrity, to think, what is it I really want? Is there a way to do this that honors myself, but also honors you know, my, my children who depend on me as their mother. And, um, anyway, she's just kind of, again, I, I keep saying the word flailing because that's kind of how yeah. I picture her just like not going about it in, um, in a responsible way. So, well, and we do see like the doctor at the end, she walks home with him after Adele's childbirth and she's just really struggling with like all of her internal feelings and what to do and how she's going to deal with her life. And he offers to be a guide. I mean, yes. he offers to be a sounding board. He really offers like some very clear help and says he wouldn't judge. And, and I don't, I mean, they don't establish too much of a relationship there, but mm -hmm. he seems genuinely like somebody who could have been, you know, a helping figure. And she's like, not even at a point where she can figure out how to engage with another person about what she's going through. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which is just that part was sad. So sad. So sad. You're right. I had forgotten about that part. That doctor was like, <laughs> yeah, made 
kind of threw her a lifeline and she couldn't even take it. Yeah, that quote, she says she's blindly following whatever impulse moved her. That just does not have a great track record for humans making good (laughs) decisions. Like blindly following our hormones or our impulses. Like, ah! Yeah. Anyway. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of the discussion, Shauna. So what... What conclusions or takeaways do you think you'll take away from this book? Oh, uh, I, well, so I didn't know anything about the book, like I said, before I read it. So it really hit, like it was really took me by surprise. Um, And so I feel like I thought a lot about what could have been different, right? Like, even though we ultimately don't have any control over another person, There's just so much to be said for human connection and feeling valued and loved and seen and heard. And and reading it, I just felt so much isolation in her experience. And she doesn't feel connected to her family. She's an outsider in her community because she came like from another state. She's taken care of physically, but she's not emotionally or spiritually connected in her relationship. And I just think that today... We're just striving for like a better human experience for all people. And for women, I think that can mean feeling valued as a whole human being, both internally and externally, and not for what you can do for other people or how you look. And I just think that reading this really represented the part of living with your whole being that requires knowing yourself And that when we limit people by teaching them or requiring them to live in boxes, we just create misery. And I think we can learn that we have come a long way in some aspects, like someone in Edna's position would have been able to get a divorce. Mm -hmm. But before that, they could have had counseling, couples counseling. There's, you know, we have co-parenting. We have all of these family dynamics that could have expanded her box But I still think we require a lot of boxes for people to fit in. So hopefully the more we understand this, the more we stop teaching our children that they have to fit in a box and they won't have to fight so hard to live their own authentic lives. And I think she just did such a good job opening this character up. And when you were reading the description, you said something like that, like, we really saw the inner workings of this female character and her struggle. And the fact that we're not given the happy ending, it's just so raw and hard to read, but it made it super impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I I agree with everything you said. Um, and I think my takeaways would just, would, would be this, the same that you said, how important it is to, um, take care of ourselves to stay in touch with who we are. And I mean, I, I felt like I kept thinking about like, what would I say to someone who's listening to this and, and, and says, I'm going through the same thing in Edna's position. I'm married and I have kids and I'm going through, cause I've known people like this, especially now we're kind of in the time of life that people go through crises like this. And, and, have a, you know, a quote unquote midlife crisis where they're like waking up and going, oh no, how'd I get here? This isn't the life I want. And I have all these people who are depending on me and I just do not have advice for any, because each person is in such a a, a unique position. I wouldn't know how to help besides just referring people to counselors. So I'm grateful that you brought up the fact that, you know, we should be really grateful that we have more resources now. Um, that can that can help us 
find a way forward if we find ourselves in a position like this. But one thing I do know that's quite clear is, is um, like we said, how can we teach our children to never find themselves in that position? Like, how can we make sure that they don't anesthetize themselves, that they don't just put themselves on a conveyor belt that leads through the factory so that they wake up later and think like, mom and dad, like, why'd you put me on this conveyor belt? Or like, I, you know, they, that they don't find themselves in that position. And I think just trying to lead an authentic life of integrity all the way through so that, um, we don't find ourselves with just like really tough and we will, we, everyone will experience something like this where we have different, you know, ways that we wake up and different ways that we realize things as we go, but not some terrible crisis. Um, so I want to teach my children to be able to stay in touch with their bodies, stay in touch with nature, stay in touch with art, stay in touch with who they deeply, truly are um, so that they can have healthy lives all the way through. I guess that's my takeaway. Yeah. I was thinking the way you said that too, like surrounding yourself with people who mm. support that in you and you support that in them makes such the difference. Oh, and that's yeah. why I feel like the connection is what's so important because we have that internally and we're, you can't say we're not going to go through changes Mm -hmm. where like, you know, you do need a big life shift, but if you're doing it surrounded by people who want that for you and support that and can help you, it makes such a difference rather than a bunch of people who are telling you not to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So trying to be those people for everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Be that person for somebody else and, and be the compassionate and loving friend for, for someone who's going through it too. Well, Shauna, thank you. This was such a great, great, rich discussion. I had so much fun reading and talking about this book with you. Thanks for being here. Uh, thank you. I'm so glad I got to be a part of this. It was really, really, really fun. Awesome. Well, our next episode, um, we will be switching gears from our last two works of fiction, and we'll be discussing a speech. We'll be heading into the 20th century and reading The Fundamental Principle of a Republic by Anna Howard Shaw. Um, This is really fun because today, actually, the day we're recording is Valentine's Day, and Anna Howard Shaw was born on Valentine's Day. So if you think of Liz Lemon on 30 Rock saying happy Anna Howard Shaw Day, everybody, when it's Valentine's Day, because she hates Valentine's Day. <laughs> that's that's my <laughs> reference. Um, but this speech is incredible. It's incredible um, discussion of women's suffrage. It was delivered in New York in 1915 when New York was still holding out against the women's vote. And as you read it, try to get inside the head of Anna Howard Shaw, because women had been fighting for the right to vote in our country for 67 years since the Seneca Falls Convention, and they still couldn't get a federal law passed. And so Shaw is frustrated. And I think this speech is really, really interesting because she addresses a lot of the arguments being used at the time to fight against women's suffrage. Um, So it's just really illuminating to understand the debate and why people didn't want women to vote at the time. Um, It's really easy to find the speech online. I looked it up and I found it in like two seconds. It's on Iowa State University's Archives of Women's Political Communication. Um, So just 
look it up. It's easy to find. It's a wonderful, actually really entertaining speech. Um, And then join us for the discussion of Anna Howard Shaw's The Fundamental Principle of a Republic next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm -hmm.